Hi, everybody, and thank you for joining us for Black on the Scene. I'm John Gist, and I'm here with my co-host, Dee Dee Brown, and we are chatting today with the amazing Gilda Squire. Gilda founded Squire Media and Management Incorporated in 2008, and this boutique management and PR firm oversees the careers of groundbreaking ballerina Misty Copeland, my fave, award-winning actor Courtney B. Vance, my fave again, and Golden Globe winner Angela Bassett, another fave. In addition to talent management and PR, the firm offers media training and brand management marketing services for a number of projects for television networks, film studios, media corporations, and streaming services. Yoda is a true, true, true legend in the entertainment space, and we are so honored to have her as a guest on Black on the Scene today. John, I am so over the moon for this conversation with Gilda. I don't want you trying to hijack my friend after this because I know how you do. Um, I have had the immense pleasure of knowing Gilda for many years when we worked at the same parent company in the 2000s, mid to early 2000s, when we were both little baby PR cubs. Um, I couldn't tell you exactly how we met, probably at the company like DEI group, but I do remember us hitting it off immediately, launching around Midtown, getting our workouts in, and really supporting each other as Black women in PR at a predominantly white company. Um, I kind of feel like we also embarked on our self-employment journey around the same time. Yes, yes. I can can actually tell you how we met. (gasps) A Lekwek book party for her. Yes. Yes. Uh, you some oh wow you must have invited me to that and i remember so you were working on it you were working on it for for that company at the oh yes because we partnered you guys approached um us about partnering on the uh, book release party bd's mind is blown yeah and it was this wonderful (laughs) publication party at this real hot spot back then called socialista Yes! Oh my God! <laughs> and this is so funny because I also was like one of the only Black people, of course, and you were one of the only Black people at the publishing house. And I I have goosebumps right now because now I remember, first of all, it's a Lekwek and I'm like, yes, this sister was uh-huh. like, people probably don't understand. Like she was one of the original, like changing the game of fashion, changing the game of, of representation and all the things. And I remember this book party. I wish I could remember what I was wearing. And so I have to get back to my intro because I want to share another favorite memory of of mine with you over the years. Like we don't get to same classes. <laughs> at the corporate gym. <laughs> Girl, it was not about those spin classes, but listen, we got our lunching in and we got our exercise in. So that self-care, which yes. wasn't really a thing back then, yes. was we were embarking on that. Um, and that's one of our questions too. But one of my favorite memories is it's just like a few years ago and I was consulting at an African-American marketing and PR agency. We were working on Mission Impossible. Oh and my gosh, yes. yes. <laughs> I knew I knew, of course, that you represented Courtney B. Vance, but I wasn't aware that you were also representing his fabulous significant other. And I remember getting to the Mandarin and I was so stoked because we had Essence Yes Girl podcast there and I love those ladies over at Essence. And we had The Root and Veronica Webb, who was one of my favorite models from the 90s, was working with The Root at the time. So I'm already stoked. And of course, I'm getting to see and be in the essence of the queen, Angela Bassett. And then you walked in with her. I was like, yes, yes. You know, it's funny because 
that was actually my first few months of working with her. I just started working with her right at the tail end of Black Panther. Yeah, so Black Panther had already come out. It was already this global phenomenon. And um, and yeah, and Courtney called me late one Sunday night and said, my wife is about to call you. <laughs> I have I have so many questions. Okay, so you are obviously, you know, you had some interaction with her working with Courtney and then we'll just get back to how you got into the entertainment industry um, in the first place. And John, I'm going to try to let you get a word in edgewise, but I can't promise. Uh, <laughs> Fine, I'll just be here. Fly the wall. <laughs> when he says that, what goes through your mind? And then she actually does call you and you are like, what? <laughs> well, I not that I would ever want her to hear this, but initially I was very hesitant um, about taking it on. Um, you know, because as, as much as I've done, as much as I do, you know, there's still always those sort of reservations that you have within yourself um, of, you know, am I ready for something like this? I know, I know it for some people who may know me, they may think, oh, that's insane. Why would you say that? But I think it's a healthy, as an entrepreneur, it's a healthy thing to do is to, you know, not necessarily not take advantage of the opportunity, but to, to ask something, some questions. Is this right for me? Is this something that I have the capacity and the bandwidth to take on? Those are real questions when you're in business for yourself. So those were the questions that I had. I was like, you know, I'm, I'm doing all of this great work with Courtney. Misty Copeland is a full-time plus plus job. I have all of these, I had all of these other projects going on because I still, those are not the only people I work with. I still have other clients and projects that may be shorter term, like three, six, months, nine months, maybe not year round, but they still, nonetheless, I'm a boutique company. So it takes up a lot of my time. So those were very healthy, realistic questions that I had to ask myself. But ultimately, obviously, I said yes. <laughs> we love that. Um, Gilda, let's go back and let's talk about how you actually got into the entertainment industry. Like, what was that journey like for you uh, career-wise? Securitous. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I... I always loved various forms of entertainment. I always aspired to some form of entertainment, whether it was music, film, publicity. But, you know, I'm, I'm a girl from a very, very small rural town in Virginia called Rutha Glen that most people have never heard of, but it's about 45 minutes to an hour outside of Richmond, Virginia. And, you know, people where I grew up didn't do things like this. You know, they graduated high school, they got married and had kids, or they went to college and then they got married and had kids. And, you know, most of them, I'm not saying no one moves away, but the large majority of the people who I grew up with, they stay pretty close. Um, and so to have a dream of eventually moving to New York and doing something in entertainment seemed a bit far-fetched. And um, so my, my route was very circuitous. I graduated high school at 16 years old. Um, my first real job out of high school was working for the Federal Bureau of, of Investigation, the FBI. Um, at the time, I didn't realize how valuable that experience was going to be. I just needed to have a job because my mom had died when I was 15. And um, college suddenly evaporated for a number of reasons. 
And, and that was always her plan, my plan for me. So when that plan sort of didn't happen, I had to think of, well, what, what's next? And so the FBI had an opportunity for a clerk typist in the Richmond office. A lot of people don't realize they have field offices. And um, I was a really, really great typist. I used to type 120 words a minute. So wow. I said, let me, <laughs> <laughs> let, me, let me go ahead and put this to use. And so the long securitous route is I went through the FBI and then I eventually ended up in DC and I worked on Capitol Hill with the Office of Technology Assessment, which is a congressional think tank, scientific think tank. And from there, um, my boss, who's the director of the agency, I worked for him as his administrative secretary, one day just said to me, you know what, I think that you have a lot more to do. And there's nothing wrong with being a secretary. You're very good at it. And, and there's value in being an assistant. But I think that you have something bigger, greater waiting for you. And so he saw something in me that I didn't see in myself. And so he basically threatened me and said, if you don't go back to school, I'm firing you. And so I was like, you can't do that. He said, I absolutely can. I'm, I'm the head of this agency. I can do whatever I want. And so he made it possible for me to go back to school full-time and work full-time. It was the most insane three and a half years of my life, but it taught me how to prioritize. It taught me to set goals. It taught me how to manage and respect deadlines. It taught me the importance of not being afraid to really go in. And I went in for three and a half years. And it was during that time that the dream about being in entertainment was born. There's so much to you. I have feels. Like, Me that was too. Crazy. I'm like, that is such a great story. Like, how old were you at that time? So when he told me that, I was 21. So that's at the time when a lot of kids, young adults are graduating. So you have this process of he helped you believe in yourself. I'm sure there's other things going on back at home. You're yeah. a little bit like a fish out of water and you are persevering, believing in yourself and to your point, prioritizing. So you have this dream at this point about entertainment. How did that dream get to like noodling in your, it just in, I guess, in the back of your mind or in your heart? And what was that? So I have to think about how to condense this story. Um, while I was attending George Mason University, which is ultimately where I graduated from, um, just outside of DC, um, a very good friend of mine at the time had decided she wanted to do a magazine and it was called Anla Noir. This is before Vibe, this is before all the multiculturalism, but she was this, you know, she's, she was this at the time, black girl, not much younger than me. I think she may have been two years younger than me. And she wanted to be her own version of Jackie Onassis Kennedy. She wanted to be in publishing. She wanted to work with magazines. And so she decided to create her own. And she felt like there was this massive void, which there was at the time, this massive void of diversity in, in publications and magazines. She said, great, there's Essence. Great, there's Ebony. But there's more to us than just being Black people, we're part of a global society. And wouldn't it be great to show the globalism of it all? 
And so she started the magazine. It didn't really get off the ground, but she brought me in because as her friend, she was like, help me with this. And so I did. And I, you know, I helped put together photo shoots, which I had never done before. All of this while I still had my full-time job, all of this while I was still going to school full-time. It was crazy. But at night when I didn't have class and when she didn't have class because she was going to Howard, um, we put these photo shoots together and it was just the most exhilarating time because I felt like we're creating something and it was that creating something that really kind of got under my skin and that's how I decided to pursue public relations and entertainment. And what's so fascinating about this, so first of all she is a visionary woman and and, and those things still obviously hold true today, right? Absolutely. Um, I'm curious to know because there's another part to this story that I just think is so key. So you don't automatically get into entertainment yeah. at that point. When I say circuitous, I mean circuitous. So I graduated from George Mason University. Um, at that time, uh, Office of Technology Assessment, the congressional agency I was working with, um, Newt Gingrich had come in and decided his first 100 days of Congress, he was shutting everything down. So while everyone else who are all these top, um, you know, scientists and technologists in the world who, who all congregated at OTA, as we called it, they were all trying to figure out what their careers were gonna be. This was a prime time for me because I was winding down my time at OTA and figuring out this new path. And so I moved to New York um, with no job, but I figured, you know, I've got this degree, I've got this experience and I've done this great internship. And so I'm ready. And I got a couple of offers from music label, record labels, but wasn't paying much. And I was like, I can't survive off of this. Cause you know, again, to your point, I was not a 20 year old, 21 year old graduating from college. I was more like 25 and I'd had this whole life prior to, so I needed to live. And so I went to this um, headhunter who said, oh, you, you really need to go to Wall Street. Like Wall Street, I didn't move all the way to New York City to work on Wall Street, really. And so she sent me on the interview and I got the job at Goldman Sachs. And I cried for three months. I cried every day for three months because I thought I have let myself down. What am I doing? I did not come here to work on Wall Street. What am I doing here? I don't even know if I like the work. But you know, when you are someone who has a dream, you, you have to kind of take a second and, and think there's a reason why I'm here. And that's what I did. I took that moment and I thought about it and I said, you know what, there's a reason why I'm here. And maybe just maybe if I'm at this big, amazing company that my whole family's like, I can't believe you're at Goldman Sachs. Maybe I need to take a moment and think about how to cultivate this experience so that it leads me to the next chapter, whatever that's going to be. And so I did that. I stayed at Goldman for almost six years, um, did some amazing things there, including creating their U.S. diversity marketing program. And once I launched that, I figured, you know what, now it's time for me to start thinking about how to get back to my dream of getting into, into entertainment. And it seemed pretty far-fetched at that point, right? Because I'm now this Wall Street professional, you know, I'm a marketing person. And so how do I now make that way left turn to get back into entertainment? Um, and so what I did was I networked my way into book publishing through this amazing literary agent, legendary Marie Brown, who was basically my fairy godmother, who walked me into 
Penguin with Marilyn Duxworth at the time, who happened to be at the time the most powerful black woman in publishing. She was a vice president of publicity and associate publisher at Penguin Putnam. And she gave me a shot. And so that was my entryway into entertainment publicity. Wow. Like I'm loving this because I didn't have, I have never had all this context about you, Gilda. Like I, it's like <laughs> me, it's like, you know, Gilda the publicist and then onward, right? It's like, it's like all this other stuff backwards is, is it's so I've lived like 10 lives. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, and, I, and I love all 10 of them. But like, let's talk about, let's unpack a little something you talked about before of like, you know, between your Wall Street Golden Sack days to going into book publishing. Like, I would love to kind of like you to share as being a black woman in both of those spaces like what kind of challenges were you faced like did you was it how, how hard was it like was it were you always the only one or one of five like how, how how was that experience for you you know so going to Goldman because I had not most people when they go to a Goldman Sachs to a Wall Street type of opportunity especially at a Goldman Sachs they've worked their whole academic careers to get there Right. So they are very clear about the environment that they're going into. That was not me. So I had no expectations whatsoever. It just looked like a big old corporation, you know, and coming from the federal government, too. That was different because we weren't used to, you know, the artwork all over the walls and, you know, the big cherry wood doors that open up to the conference room. I mean, it was it was a very different environment that I had not been prepared for. But I'm a hard worker and I knew that I needed a job. I'm here in New York freaking city, the most, one of the most expensive cities in the world. So I've got to find a way to make this work. To answer your question more directly though, is because I wasn't prepared, I didn't go into it with any sort of perspective on how I was supposed to be treated. I didn't know that there weren't a ton of black people on Wall Street. I come from the federal government, again, where there were a lot of black people around me. It was a very diverse environment. But to come into this environment, it was like the UN, if you ask me. It was like, you know, we had people from all over the world. However, people who looked like me, they were far and few between. And so coming from Washington, D.C., Chocolate City, we gravitated toward each other. And so that's what I tried to do when I got to Goldman and it was not so well received. And so, you know, there was a very, not that people were rude, they were just very clear, like we're in our own sort of space, you gotta make your way here. And so I never felt discouraged by it. I felt empowered by it because I felt like, you know what? There is a lot that can be done here, which is why I'm so proud of having been involved in developing and implementing that U.S. diversity marketing program, because I understood that if we can get this right, if I can play my part, there will be more people who come through the door. I mean, Gilda, you have said so many words right now. This is like the master class of Gilda Squire. Yes. <laughs> you, you, the, the thing that I want to maybe just illuminate is just running around New York in the early 2000s, mid 2000s was, you gotta remember like Google really wasn't that much of a thing. Like social media wasn't a thing and you really were scrappy in ways you didn't know. You couldn't just Google stuff, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You yeah. could not just Google stuff. And you really, you said you were a hard worker but you weren't just a hard worker, you were also, 
you know, hungry for the opportunity, flexible. You were probably very coachable too, because you were very vulnerable in these situations and industries you don't know anything about. Mm-hmm. I have several questions about this, but mostly I want to hear about you pivot into publishing and these wonderful black women or this black woman gives you a chance and talk a little bit about that pivot and getting there and like having to maybe reframe your mindset in some way or anything else that was that you're like I'm in a whole new thing and I got to make this work how <laughs> okay so that's a really good question Didi actually and one that no one's ever asked me about and it's it's very good to go there so working in a place like Goldman Sachs I don't know if it, how many people out there have, have been in that kind of environment, but it is truly a trial by fire environment. You know, they, they give you your orientation, you get your training, and then it's like, let's go. <laughs> and, and, and it's such a forward thinking kind of organization in that, you know, we were in training constantly for the new technology, for the new platform, for the new this, for the new that. And so, that six years at Goldman, I tell people I got, I got my proverbial MBA from Goldman Sachs. And so to leave, and, and, and because I spent six years there, you start to think that this is how the world operates, even though I knew that that wasn't true coming from the federal government. But it was so ingrained, that pace, that, that kind of attitude, that the way that we did the work the way that we handled clients, that was so deeply ingrained in me that by the time I got to publishing, I was like fish out of water, you know, because I had this go, 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 let's get it done. How are we, you know, look, time is money. You know, we can't, we gotta, we gotta get this done. I'm not gonna sit here. I still have that attitude. I'm not gonna sit here and just meet with you for the sake of meeting. Like, what are we accomplishing? And so to go into publishing and I I don't wanna, you know, I'm not, at all disparaging the industry at all, but it was very different. I mean, Goldman was so, even in the 2000s, Goldman was so technology driven. Everything was on a platform, everything. We had gone paperless in like 1999, right? And so to go to a place like Penguin in publishing just as a whole, it was like going back 25, 30 years. And so that was a huge adjustment for me. And so the one thing that I will say is that when you are going from opportunity to opportunity, chapter to chapter, you have to meet them where they are, wherever they are. And then whatever you bring to the table, help bring them along with you. And that's what I didn't do. I went in there, guns a blazing, like, okay, you know, I've never done book PR before. Like, understand, I had never done a book tour ever. But I go in there because what Goldman did instill in me is the belief that if you if you do the work and you put in the time and you put in the grind, you can do anything you want. And so I didn't go into the publishing situation with fear. I went into it with complete being eager and excited and enthusiastic and feeling like we can we can change the world here because that was what was instilled in me at Goldman. And so going into that environment like that, it was tough. 
it was tough. Like just a very small example, um, you know, at Goldman, because again, we were technology driven. If you had a meeting, you just left your calendar because everything was online. You left your calendar up on your screen. So everybody could see like, oh, where's Gilda? Oh, I see Gilda is at blah, 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 blah. You know, because we just left our calendars up on our screen so people could see publicly, this is where I am. And so that's what I would do. I was having all these author meetings. You know, I'm new to the game. So I've got to go meet agents. I've got to meet authors. I've got to sit down with people. We've got to talk about plans and, and establish these relationships, right? And so I would leave my calendar up on my screen. They would come in my office and I see that I was there for two or three hours. And I would get yelled at, yelled at, like, where were you? I left it on my screen, turned around so that when you walk in my office, you could see, well, why would I look at your screen? Because it has a calendar on it. And you know, they were used to like, when they wanted to set up meetings, they would literally go from office to office. Are you available on Tuesday at this time? And I'm like, why don't you just send me a meeting request? You don't even have to, you don't even have to come in here while I'm on the phone pitching the Today Show. You don't have to do that. You can just send me a meeting request and I can just, boop, answer you back online. So it was those kinds, but I, I didn't, I feel now in retrospect, it was my not understanding, this is a whole different environment. And rather than expecting people to be where you are, you have to meet them where they are and help bring them along. Listen, Gilda, we're going to, we're going to have to have an offline conversation because you, that is, that is seriously, that struck me in such a way, and Didi knows, like, I, that, that is really so, so, so poignant, and thank you for sharing that, because I just think of, of anything that is like, it's that the is little the, things. It's, it's the, the little things, things. yeah. And it's, yeah. So, it's so simple in theory, but it's like, it's such a thing. It is such a, a, an amazing big thing there. And, and the way that I worked, which was the, really, at that point, the only way I knew how to work, unfortunately colored my whole experience that I had a very successful, you know, time at Penguin, but in terms of the managing up part of it to my bosses, it just, and, and I understand that now being more mature, being more along the lines in my career, I understand why they felt the way that they did. I wasn't trying to tell them how to do their jobs. I was just like, there are so many better ways to do this. You know, I'm trying to bring y'all into the present, into the future, you know, and y'all are, you know, but, but that's not how you work it. So that managing up and, and meeting people where they are is really important. So in retrospect, because th again, this is such a good lesson, I think, for all of us, because Gilda, you and I are closer in age and John is a bit younger and um, he has just embarked on a new work uh environment and situation that's very different from his last. And there's, you, you look back now, obviously not knowing at the time. So what are the specific characteristics that you would say that you need to be a little bit more, I don't know if it's coachable, flexible, just something that's like super tangible, like 
about reframing how you're engaging with people at that time. Because a lot of us, when we're younger in our careers, as you said, we don't have that framework. Probably mentorship really wasn't a thing when you were doing this. You didn't have a mentor per se, and certainly not within the company. Now we have company mentors that will help you navigate this process. We didn't have that. John and I truly hope that you are enjoying this episode of Black on the Scene, but we're interrupting this episode just to ask a quick favor. Please take a moment to hit the subscribe button, plus leave us a rating after the show. And now back to the episode. Enjoy. So that could be one of the more tangible things now is if you have a company mentor, you really need to be able to get in there and talk about some of those challenges that you're having and maybe how to overcome them. So very good point. When I was at Goldman, I actually did have a mentor, an informal mentor, but a mentor nonetheless. And he goes by the name of Mr. John F.W. Rogers. And I tell people all the time, he was on the letterhead of Goldman Sachs, like the real letterhead. And um, that's how powerful he was. And he is the reason why I had that phenomenal opportunity to develop and implement the uh, US diversity marketing program at Goldman Sachs. He got behind me. He was the one who said to me, you know, Gilda, you know, you're, I, I hear you, you're right. We should not be scrambling to come up with advertising executions when we get the call. We should already have a program in place. Why don't you go do that? And you know what? Why don't you go do that? And I'm going to help walk you into these managing directors and the marketing committee and the firm wide committee you know, we're gonna, I'm going to walk you in those doors and I'm going to support you. And then what I'm going to do is give you the budget that you need to make this happen. That was who this man was to me, right? And so, and, and he was also the man who instilled in me, you are capable of doing whatever you want. You just got to put your mind to it and, and know that I'm here to support you. What I didn't, what I took for granted was that going to Penguin into a whole different industry, I needed that same type of mentoring. That should have been something from the moment, especially because if I dare say it, publishing was even more whitewashed than Goldman, you know what I'm saying? And then Wall Street, like walking into that environment, it was like, now that's where, oddly enough, that's where I really felt it. You know, I kind of walked in, I mean, because I'm coming from this different industry, I've had this different kind of training instilled in me, this different kind of mentality instilled in me. And now I'm coming into an environment where you basically, it's like, just shut up and be a publicist, you know? Um, and so that was tough for me. And the mentoring part is so important. And I think I assumed that Marilyn Duxworth, who was the black woman in charge of our department, I think I assumed that she was going to be my mentor, but never make that assumption. And that was my mistake. I thought, I remember the first day I started, you know, I'm all excited and I'm in my Wall Street attire in the summertime in publishing, which is not that I stuck out like a sore thumb in my heels and my suit and, you know, cause I didn't know what else to wear. I mean, that's what I'd worn for six years. And so I go in her office and I sit down and she says to me, you know, welcome, yada, yada. But I was told not to hire you because you have no experience in book publishing and I've hired you at the publicist level. 
And that's a big deal, Gilda, because most people start at the assistant level, but you're coming in as a publicist. Don't make me regret that decision. That was the talk I had day one. <laughs> and you know what? It's all good. I didn't take offense to it. I wasn't sitting there going, wow, lady, you know, thanks for the welcome. I appreciated that because that gave me what I needed to let's go. But my let's go and their version of let's go were two different things. And that's where the importance of the mentorship would have come in. Well, listen, there's so much more to um, unpack about this. And sadly, I could, I should have gotten, we should have gotten on her calendar, John, for two more hours. Right. Um, <laughs> but I do want to hear about like, you're in this publishing space and remind us how long you were in publishing and then you actually leave publishing and embark on a whole nother career pivot. Yeah. So when I went into publishing, it was, I, I inherently knew, even though I'd never vocalized it, I inherently knew that I was not going to be there just going from company to company and trying to become a vice president. That was never my dream. My dream after I left Goldman was really to find a way to get into entertainment PR and eventually start my own firm. And so I was in publishing. I'd left Penguin and um, went to a smaller boutique PR firm just to sort of see how that worked. Um, how, did, how does that work in that kind of environment? And then I got recruited um, to go to HarperCollins and I was a director of publicity there. And so after about four and a half years, I believe, of being at HarperCollins, I just, again, not to disparage the industry, I just coming from a place like Goldman where you're constantly looking forward, I did not see where that industry was going. I did not see the industry, like they were so reluctant to ebooks and i'm like guys this is the wave of the future i mean you can't you can't push it away you've got to find a way to embrace it and make it work for the industry right and so i just said you know what it's time for me to go I, i've got to start my own thing so as crazy as it was in 2008 and we all know what was happening in 2008 with the economy collapse and you know all of that um, I decided to start my own firm and people thought I was nuts. They were like, oh my God, in this economy, are you insane? And I said, but you know what? If I can do it now, if I can make it now, I'll be able to make it at better time. So now's the better time for me to test the strategy. And so I left um, January 1st, uh, January 1st, 2008. That was my first day. That was my happy new year gift to myself. And I have to thank people like Mickey Taylor, who if for many who recall, she was a, you know, um, cover director and beauty director at Essence Magazine. She brought me into TV One um, when she was doing some projects there. And so I got to work with TV One and I had the opportunity, the phenomenal opportunity to launch Unsung, the Unsung series that became one of their bigger hits. Um, yeah, I did the publicity for that. Um, and, and just, and that was sort of the beginning of branching out, not leaving behind books, but again, bringing books with me as I continue to expand my repertoire of clients. And, you know, I find it so interesting because I think, you know, there's so many people who've said, John, you should start your own agency. You should, you should do your, you know, go off and do your own thing. And honestly, outside of it, not just, I don't, that's not my ministry. That's not what I want to do in life, but it's also just like, I, I would assume it's so hard, right? Like of just like really just stepping out and just, you know, doing that. I know that you and Didi have, have that entrepreneurial spirit, 
And I always, I, I respect that so, so, so much. But let's talk about like what it was like. I know your agency has been around 14, 15 years or so now. And, and that's such a blessing, but like talk about those, the early years of it, right? Like, you know, how was it, you know, getting clients and, and getting, you know, getting business and things like that. Cause people out there, they want to, they want to start their own businesses. So like, what were the things that you kind of, you know, faced the challenges you kind of faced going through that? You know, this is going to sound crazy. I'm not going to say there weren't any challenges, but John, in terms of my transitioning into my own business, it was pretty seamless. And, and that, I truly believe, was a testament to the, the building blocks that I've been laying along my career. You know, um, it, it, was, it was a testament to doing the work. Um, it was a testament to that Goldman Sachs spirit of the client always comes first. And that was the spirit that I took with me to publishing. So even though I'm in-house working with authors and agents and editors and publishers and salespeople and the marketing people, all of them, I treated all of them as my clients, every single one of them, even my internal colleagues. So everyone was treated like a client. And with the authors, in terms of, you know, we could be working on five, six books at a time, like literally, we got two books coming out right now with the book tour, a multi-city book tour. We got the book from last quarter that's still pumping that we're still working on. We got the three books coming out in six months where the manuscripts are just coming in and we're starting to like, that's what it was like working in house. But none of those authors ever knew at any point that I had a whole bunch of other people that I was working with. Everyone felt that they were the most important person to me. And that was important to me to convey that spirit to them. Same thing with their agents. I always made sure that whenever I'm on the phone with you, whenever I'm in the meeting with you, you're the most important person to me. And so I think because of those types of relationships that I built, when I let people know that I was leaving, the work came. I, you know, I, I've been tremendously blessed in that respect. My first three projects, believe it or not, were from my job, HarperCollins. So, so that's how my, my business became, began. HarperCollins gave me my, they were my, my job was my first client. <laughs> wow. So in terms of challenges, um, you may think they're little, they weren't to me. I'm not a tech person, as you could see from the beginning of this. And so my, I'm used to having that IT person, that help desk. So getting used to having to do everything, including the work, that was my challenge. Having to have faith every single day that the bills are going to get paid, that the business was going to continue, that was my overarching challenge. Because I'm a, I used to tell people, I'm a paycheck kind of girl, that every two weeks was important to me. Those, that health insurance and those benefits mean everything to me. So suddenly I'm now out here in my own sort of corporate entity and I'm responsible for all of that. That was the bigger challenge. And, and let's just also talk about there was probably no, you don't have a fund coming from the folks necessarily or the family or there was no backup. You don't, you also did not have a rich husband that was funding your life. You literally were doing this all with no blueprint. 
with grace and I think, and I know for a fact, a ton of humility. And I have to say, y'all, if you've never been in Gilda's presence, when you do, it is zen, it is comforting, it is no nonsense, it is wonderful. She's absolutely the warmest, most no-nonsense, professional, consummate PR professional. You're not going to see her in the background twerking with her client. You just won't. And there's nothing wrong with that because we're in a different space. But we grew up very old school as baby PR cubs. You just did not do that. And I'm curious to know how, because I know you don't really like doing interviews and personal and I'm always like Gilda you need to tell this story people need to know how amazing you are and and the and the journey because it hasn't been linear and you've been figuring it out along by yourself talk about like some of this what social media has done for you like navigating the, the that part your personal um because we all have personal things going on just how you're navigating life non-negotiables how you taking care of yourself girl let us let us hear it all so i've only in the past few years um become a bit more comfortable with with being a bit more front and center that's the only way i can put it because you're correct i come from the school of pr that you're not the story your client is the story when you start to become the story that becomes a problem you're supposed to be the person creating the brand, helping to tell the messaging of the brand. Well, I feel a little differently about that now only because I recognize now that maybe what my experience have turned out to be the resulting me as a business owner can help someone else. And that's why I tell the story. Um, I have never ever been interested in the shining lights or being the person out front. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm actually very uncomfortable with it because I like being behind the scenes. But I also do recognize that there is value in me telling people about this journey because I, I, I appreciate that it is a different journey. Social media, um, I'm still navigating that. I mean, that's whole, like a whole other job. I tell people all the time, just because you're a PR person doesn't automatically mean you're a social media person. That's another skill that you have to groom and hone and navigate. Um, and, and, and now really as PR people lean into it because that's as much a part of the overall marketing and public relations strategy as anything. And so I'm still working on that. <laughs> I'm, I'm definitely still working on that, but I do recognize the importance of using social media as a medium to build an audience. I think that's that's so fair and that's so true. Um, I think I'm guilty of that too, Gilda. So we're here together. It's it's Didi's always pushing me out. Like you need to be doing more in your branding. I'm like, ah, let the work speak for itself. Is <laughs> my kind of that's my mo. Um, I want to first say like shout out to you being a personal publicist because I always say that that is one of the hardest jobs in the business of literally you know knowing and being there for for your clients in so many ways for, for professional personal and everything else in between talk about that to, for a second like you know being a personal publicist what is the what do you think the best thing about being a personal publicist is and then what do you also think like what is one of your one of the worst things maybe that that kind of come with the job as well um one of the best things that goes along with being a personal publicist is 
people see the end result. They see the red carpet. They see the client on the stage accepting their Oscar or their Emmy. They see, you know, the Today Show interview or the BET interview. Um, and, and they see this like campaign. Um, that's the rewarding part of it. When you actually see the work that you've been putting in for five, six months come to fruition in a campaign that's effective, that's winning and that's selling and it works. Um, I don't know that there's a worse part of it, but the part that's difficult or sometimes challenging is people don't recognize that publicists, we're not in charge of anything. We can't make anything happen. All we can do is create the best pitch, the best campaign, the best messaging, and, and really do our best to go to the media organizations and outlets that we think best suits that messaging, that purpose, that launch, that campaign. It doesn't always work. And so when it doesn't work, that's the part that's difficult and challenging to absorb because you know you did all of the work. So I don't know if that's the kind of answer you were looking for, but that for me personally, that's the way it feels. It's like when it works, it's fantastic. And you feel like you've really accomplished something. When it doesn't come together as planned, you just kind of take a deep breath and say, mm, and you reevaluate, like, why didn't that work? What could I have done differently? And that's disappointing for me. I love that. I love that. And, you know, coming with coming to the world of personal publicity as well, like it's, it's fast paced. It's always moving. Yeah. Are there any particular resources that kind of keep you organized or kind of keep you motivated day to day to, especially in this COVID world we're in now, we're, you know, we've been here for the last year and a half, looks like we're still going. So are there any, are there any kind of things that kind of keep you organized from a resource perspective and also any kind of motivational things that you could to kind of just keep you leveled with all the chaos that kind of comes with the industry? Having other publicists like you and Didi to bounce ideas off of and to talk to. I don't know that there's anything that keeps me, I, I just think that as a publicist inherently you have to be organized. You know what I'm saying? Whatever right. that yeah. is. <laughs> I mean, I just think that that's one of our skills. Um, but in terms of being motivated, I, I have to tell you throughout this COVID, I, I had it last March in the very, very, very beginning which was a scary time. Um, I was fortunate that I wasn't hospitalized, but it definitely gave me a renewed sense of self-care. And so one of the things, I have this wonderful Peloton here in my office that's not too far from me. I'm not saying I didn't use it, I did, but it wasn't as consistent as it should have been because I was always on the road. I was always, you know, the West Coast was becoming like around the corner to me. So I was traveling a lot and I was tired a lot. I wasn't taking care of me. And so that period taught me to support the organization, to support the motivation, to support continuing to push and, and, and be productive, I have to take care of me. And so that was, the, that was step number one. I had to learn to take care of me. In terms of the constant motivation, having other publicists in my life who I could call and just say, oh my gosh, you know, how are you doing? How are you getting through this? And, you know, oh, I'm working on, oh, we're doing this virtual junket. Like how did your junket go? You know, it was that sort of camaraderie and, and um, togetherness 
that helped me through. I got to tell you, from May of 2020 on, because Hollywood, y'all got back to work. I say y'all because, you know, sometimes I feel like, you know, I, I don't. I don't feel like I'm Hollywood, but Hollywood got back to work real quick. Like as soon as like the door was open, Hollywood was like, mm-hmm. okay, let's, let's do this. And so I really was, I haven't stopped since May, 2020. So I've had to continue to be motivated. Well, Gilda, as I said earlier, we could talk to you for another two hours. Completely. But- I mean, you have said so many amazing things that I think our listeners can take away that you have to, it's not, it's, it's doing the work, number one, really doing the work. And there's no way around it. And this is what I've sort of always said when I was self-employed is the work is the work. You can cheat yourself and take maybe less money. And there are times when you sometimes have to do that because it's the only client in the pipeline or whatever, but the work is the work. And that you've had this wonderful career with your own agency, also managing Misty, which again, that could be a whole nother conversation. Um, We love her. We obviously love Courtney and Angela as well. And we're so glad that you spent this time with us just illuminating a little bit about your journey because I know that there's so many other stories. Can I just say one thing? Yes. If you decide to go into your own business, as scary as it is about thinking about, do I have the clients to be able to take care of myself and my, if you have a team, all of the things that you have to think about as a business person, as an entrepreneur, do not be afraid to say no if something is not right for you. Always know that if you put in the work and you've taken care, really nurtured and taken care of those relationships, the work will continue to come. And that's something that I had to come to learn myself. The fear of telling someone no, because you need that client, you need that check. So John, going back to your question about what some of the challenges were, It was me believing in me that if I say no to this client with good reason, not just because I'm not interested, but because I genuinely don't feel that I can give what this person needs. I genuinely don't feel that I can meet these expectations. Saying no is not a bad thing. It's the right thing, not just for you, but for them too. And that client, that that person who wanted to be a client, but you've said no to, trust, know, and believe they will respect you and appreciate you for being honest with them. And nine times out of 10, you may six months, six years down the road, maybe not hear from them, but hear from them someone that they've referred to you because of that moment of honesty, so. I have also referred people to Gilda that I, she didn't end up working with and I didn't work with them for maybe some of the same reasons, but we've had dialogue about this where it's like, I can't give them what they actually need. And you know, in the end, if you say yes, you're going to regret that yes. (laughs) I've done it a few times in my life of self-employment and that thing that was telling me like, you don't need to do this project or you don't need to work with that client. 
And I sure live to regret it and the times that I didn't. So I think that that is really excellent advice. And by the way, you don't know by saying yes to that thing that you're, something is noodling on your spirit not to do, whether it's blocking you from something else. It, yes, agreed. So Gilda, as we wrap up our conversation with you, we, in this black on the scene community, representation matters. And the more we talk about it, the more we spread this, that representation matters in our love letter, John and mine, we have this, this is what the podcast and the show is all about sharing our love letter for black entertainment and what it does to uplift us, shine a light on us and really help us be seen. We'd love to hear what your love letter is to black entertainment. There are two, I, I had to really give this a lot of thought. There are two. Um, the first one was when I saw Naomi Campbell um, in various fashion magazines when I was much younger. And I was so, again, she was one of the only at that time. You know, she was usually surrounded by Linda Evangelista and Christy Turlington and Kate Moss. So she was the only one. And I remember thinking, I wanna live and work in a world where I'm involved in helping to tell those kinds of brand stories. I didn't really know what that meant, but I, I didn't wanna be the model, obviously. That wasn't my dream. But I liked the fact that she was in a business of telling stories, whether it was for fashion or whatever, she was in the business of projecting some sort of a brand message. I wanted to be a part of that. So that inspired me. That was my first love letter. My second love letter, don't judge me, was I saw what Kris Jenner was able to do with her daughter and then daughters um, based on a sex tape. She built an empire, a brand empire based on a sex tape. And what that inspired in me, what that fired up in me was I thought, if she can do that for a daughter, who, whether you think it's talent or not, what about if I was able to work with a person of color, a black person who has just endless talent and brilliance and do the same thing, but from a positive messaging standpoint. And then I blessedly met the phenomenal, the amazing Misty Copeland. So that was my second love letter. <laughs> Oh my God, I got goosebumps. And what a spectacular way to end this recording of Black on the Scene. Gilda, we love you. Thank we you. Thank you. Keep shining, keep representing, and just know we're always here for you if you ever need us. Same. Thank you. I'm always honored when people want to talk to folks behind the scenes. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Black on the Scene with Gilda Squire, founder of Squire Media and Management. This was a conversation that really lit Dee Dee and I up. I mean, wow, so many takeaways from Gilda. This was a conversation that could easily have gone on for hours and hours. Gilda shined a light on career pivoting, leveling up, and meeting people where they are in all scenarios. All things I personally will take with me moving forward. John, those were my takeaways too. Plus, how and why it's best to say no to a potential client that your gut is telling you is not a good fit and the importance of reprioritizing your self-care 
We absolutely love Gilda for giving us this masterclass on business, life, and the art of the pivot. Thanks again for joining us. Please remember to subscribe, leave a rating, and follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Black on the Scene, B-L-K on the S-C-E-N-E. Until next time.